I'm Bob Main. I carry a gun because I can't carry a cop. Welcome to another episode of the Handgun World Podcast. Welcome to episode 566 of A Practical Show, done by a practical guy, and that is me. This week, I've got an excellent interview for you to listen to. This show is brought to you by Keepers Concealment, the leading authorities on appendix carry, appendix carry holsters, and also they offer legal protection at CCW Safe. After you hear this interview, you're going to understand probably the importance of having CCW safe, which is excellent concealed carry and self-defense legal protection. Check it out. There's a link in the show notes. Go to keepersconcealment.com and use the CCW safe link and use the code, the discount code KC10 off. That's KC10 off. Now, I spent a lot of years talking about how I don't wish to be in a gunfight. And after I did this interview with Greg Ferris, it, that point is even more evident to me that I, I don't want to ever have to be in a civilian self-defense gunfight. It happens, though. It happens. Even though it's a rare possibility, that's why we carry a gun, right? So that we can respond. I've always asked, can you respond? Well, you're going to hear Greg Ferris talk about two gunfights. The first one, and both of them ended in his favor, but he didn't. He learned a lot more after the first one that prepared him for the second one, and you're going to hear about that. Now, I have to warn you, there is bad language in this interview. The Handgun World podcast is a family-friendly show. But I got to put out the warning about this episode and this episode only. There's some bad language. And I didn't want to edit it all out because if I would have done that, I would have actually probably reduced the impact of this interview. So again, if there are people that should not be listening to a lot of bad language and things like that, please don't let them listen to this episode. Only this one contains some material like what you're about to hear. Otherwise, this show is a family-friendly show, except for this. So here's your warning for, for all the language in this upcoming interview. But there's some pretty impactful stuff here. And I urge you to listen carefully because when I get a chance to interview somebody who actually has had to pull the trigger... In self-defense, I sure can't pass that up. So, Greg Ferris is the owner of Cedar Ridge Range. Ben Branham and I just taught a class at his range last weekend. Good class. We taught pistol fighting dynamics. And Greg was kind enough and generous enough to donate his time. I've always said time is not a renewable asset. If you are from the greater San Antonio area, check out Cedar Ridge Range. They also have excellent competition matches there, both IDPA and USPSA. And of course, a lot of great training classes take place there as well. For those of you who are Handgun World Patreon members, you're going to see a lot of video footage from the class last weekend I took of Ben and I teaching. Also, you Shooters Club members. So if you want to support this show, either Handgun World Patreon page for as little as 3 bucks a month or for as little as $8 a month, become a member of the Shooters Club and enjoy like over 85 exclusive episodes. Take your, take your pick. The links are in the show notes. Patreon.com slash Handgun World and ShootersClubMembers.com. Let's get right to the interview with Greg Ferris. I'm with Greg Ferris, owner of Cedar Ridge Range. We're here teaching a class. And Greg, welcome to the show. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, tell them a little bit about, about Cedar Ridge, about your firearms company before we get started. 
Well, basically, we own the range here on Farm to Market 1863 in Bulverde, Texas. I've owned it since 1997. We try to cater to all of the different types of shooting, the competitive shooting, the combat shooting, rifle, pistol, you name it. Anything that uh, is interesting to the general public, we're, we're happy to have them come out and play with us. We do sell firearms, we do sell ammo, and I've been a gunsmith since 1981, and that was my original company was Ferris Firearms. It started back, way back, uh, on Hildebrand in San Antonio, which is actually where most of what we're about to discuss in this interview took place. <laughs> and right before we get to that, I want to extend a great thank you. Your service here has always been great. Your range is fantastic. Oh, thank you. So I wanted you to talk to the class here and also to the listeners about a couple of gunfights you were in. Uh, civilian gunfights, right? Not law enforcement. Yeah, uh, it's like I used to tell people that I have the probably highest legal standard in the entire state of Texas for my judgment as far as being able to use self-defense because I'm an ex-police officer. I am a CHL or was a CHL instructor for 16 years and I have acted as a court consultant and as expert witness in self-defense cases and other types of things to do with shootings and I've been involved in two shootouts. I had uh, none of those as a police officer. There was two of them and there's been more than actual two gun confrontations but two where actual shots were fired as a civilian when I had my gun shop on Hildebrand. Well if you don't mind um if you could share a little bit about those events, what about the first time? What happened? Well, it's this is going to have to be a nutshell because this takes quite a while to talk about uh, the various things. But the first one was we had a gentleman and his friend who had decided that they were going to get some extra cash for drugs or whatever they were doing and they wanted to rob a gun store now they didn't actually come to me first they tried to rob the gun store the previous night up the road on Fredericksburg Road and as is the normal comedy of errors which you hope for with criminals these two idiots tried to do it when the shop was closed they tried to follow the last customer in but the owner had locked the door behind the last customer and these two idiots in their their um, uh, guns and face masks crashed into the door couldn't get inside so the owner handed a gun to the customer when the wife hit the panic button in the van outside the gun owner and or the uh, gun shop owner and the other guy turned around both armed and these two took off running and they weren't smart enough to learn anything from that lesson decided to take me on the next day slightly before 12 noon they walked into the store first one he didn't even bother to wear a mask Mexican kid and he was followed by, by a black guy who was wearing his hoodie backwards and again typical crim criminal uh, brilliance he had only cut one slit for one eye so he was carrying if I remember correctly a Tanfuglio 380 and being a gunsmith I was looking at the gun when he popped out from behind his buddy and screamed this is a robbery put your hands up and my problem was I had two guns one in each hand that I had just taken out of the display case that I was showing to a customer so there was a customer between me and these two bad guys and I've got a 357 about crotch level maybe two feet away at the most that was underneath the counter for use against these clowns but I couldn't do anything because the customer was in between us so I had to lay the guns down down, backed away. The little Mexican kid runs around the counter. He fills up his little gym bag that he's carried in while the other guy's standing there pointing the gun at me. And uh, they order myself and my customer off to the side. He finishes cleaning out the case, cleaning out the cash drawer. And then about the time that he comes out from behind the cash drawer, door opens, buzzer goes off, and I've got another customer coming in, and he's carrying two shotguns that he had screwed up in a uh, uh, hunt for geese down in the Houston area. A good customer, it turned out to be somebody that I'd known for years, Mr. Bill McGuire. I, uh, problem with his shotguns, but he was taken at gunpoint and we were all three ordered over to the wall while we were ordered down on the floor underneath the rifle rack. The kid was told to uh, get the handcuffs. They wanted to know where the handcuffs were. And like I said, I'm shortening the story, but the handcuffs were in a special room off to the side. 
And that room was set up strictly for law enforcement because law enforcement officers like to go in. They like to preen and look pretty and stand in front of the mirror and check out their holster and pretend to draw appropriately and all this stuff. Pretend. So had, yeah, so I had set this, this room up for them. So I sent this guy's buddy, the Mexican kid, into the law enforcement room. The handcuffs were in one of the display cases. Now, the black guy... He got real comfortable that we were laying on the ground. He didn't think we were that much of a threat. And I decided this wasn't going to last because I knew what was probably going to happen the second those handcuffs went on. We'd probably all get shot in the back of the head because this one kid didn't bother to wear any kind of disguise. He'd be easily identifiable. So the uh, black kid backed up to the front of the room to watch to see what his buddy was doing in the other room. And he took his focus off me for a second. I raised my head up to look. He looked back at me, pointed the gun at me. He says, put your motherfucking head back down. So I slammed it in the floor in a, uh, I would call it a feint, but I did it on purpose to show that I was really trying to comply. He thought that was pretty funny, so he backed over to start watching the other guy again in the other room. Well, he made one step too far, and he crossed the partition where he couldn't see me anymore, and at that point, I jumped up, ran around the corner. Now, this is an old house from the 20s when they actually used real lumber that was two-by-four, was cured, and was solid with all the, the wonderful construction, so I figured that little 380 had a, had a pretty slim chance of getting to me once I got around that wall. But they didn't know that I had a shotgun, an 870 in the back room, set up on a pegboard that I could grab right from the rack, and it was all set up and ready to go. Now, he started screaming when I got up. He heard me get up, and he apparently saw me as I made the corner. He didn't fire a shot, but he's yelling at his buddy, let's go, let's go, let's go. They thought I had run out the back to go call the police or get some help. And they didn't pay any attention to the fact that I'm still here. I came around the corner. When I came around the corner, he looked up in surprise, raised the gun. I brought the shotgun up, and yep, I screwed up. And I'll admit it's one of the lessons that I learned, which I corrected later. But I fired the first shot, which was a double-lot buck, 12-gauge shell. And it hit a Dillon press that was right in front of the guy. Some of the pellets deflected off the press and went through his right arm. And, of course, what is he? He's left-handed, didn't hit him in the gun arm. So we destroyed some nerves in the right arm, which we found out later. He turns and runs, screaming for his buddy. Now, all the times that he's going back to look for his buddy, the front door is right behind him, less than three feet. He doesn't go out. They violated the typical, really smart things that criminals should do. When you have an armed robbery, you don't stay very long. These guys were there damn near four yeah, to five minutes. Yeah, too long. Yeah, way too long. So he's trying to get the other guy to get out of the room. What he didn't understand was, once again, I don't run away. I advance when I get into a situation. This is just something I've run through in my head many times. And I advanced up to the point of the corner where I had just fired that shot and blown him off of. He had run into the other room. He could run into the room, turn around, and when he came back out, I knew what I had done wrong. Why I hadn't knocked his ass down on the first shot was I didn't get the gun correctly in alignment up to my cheek where I was looking at the pellet, so I had fired a little bit off-center and off uh, a little high. Well, knowing full well when I moved up that I had just screwed up, now I've got the gun perfectly there. I move up to the corner. He steps into the, the doorway, turns, pulls the gun up to point at me again. I rip a shot, run nine pellets, double up buck, right through his abdomen, goes completely through, and all the pellets exit. They tore right through his abdomen, hit the wall, hit the door, go through my front window, hits my neighbor's house. Fortunately, nobody was driving by on Hildebrand at the time, so none of the cars were hit. That's some serious penetration. <laughs> yeah, it went through real good. Well, that's all soft tissue. And then, knowing full well that he hadn't gone down yet, I immediately pumped in my, my third shot because I did what's called candy striping. I set it up in the order that I wanted it to come out. It was a slug, and that slug caught him in the top of his left arm where he was holding his gun. It was in the left hand. Broke both the bones and the lower arm, went through, clipped the kidney, buried in the spine, put his ass on the floor. Now, any of us sitting here, we'd have been pretty much totally out of this by now. Not this little bastard. This 19-year-old drug addict is so high, he doesn't even know he's been shot. He's still trying to crawl his way back on the floor to get to the gun 
that he had been uh, that had been knocked out when I had struck him in the other arm. The little 380. Yeah, the little 380. But he's in the room with his buddy. I can't go in the room with his buddy because I don't know where his buddy's at. And I don't know if his buddy's armed because one of the guns that he took from me to put into his gym bag was my loaded 357. So I didn't know if he had figured out if he had that or not. So I backed away from the door and I'm ready to start shooting through the wall. And I can do this because we have a mirror on the opposite side of the room where the police officers would go and stand and look at their their outfits. And what this dumb little (laughs) bastard didn't understand was I could now see where he was. He was standing right next to the door, had his right arm up, and he was going to hit or grab at me as I came through the door. I backed up and told him to lay on the floor twice, and I'm just about to pull the trigger when he looks up glanced in the mirror and he can see me seeing him. And you could see the expression on his face was, oh, shit. And so he lays down on the floor. Now, in the meantime, I'm yelling at my two customers. Uh, the man with the shotguns is told to go call 911. The other guy, I had Lewis come up, and he takes the handcuffs away that this kid had taken out of my display case. He handcuffs both the Mexican kid and the, the black kid. And just for purposes of court, I walked over with my shotgun. I put it against the top of his hoodie, swept his hoodie off, tucked it under his chin, looked him right in the face while holding the shotgun to to his chin. I wanted to make sure I could recognize the little bastard. Now, at this point, things get a little funny. The police actually were on a call about two blocks away when some of the muffled shots were heard. Mm. And when the call came out, they were immediately almost there. And a police officer comes up. Now, I'm standing next to the front door, pointing in the other room, guarding these guys so that they can't move while Lewis has finished up with the handcuffs. The police officer sticks his head in the door, looks at me, dressed in just regular standard civilian clothes, holding a 12-gauge shotgun. And I ordered him and, of course, my best authoritative police of boys Get your ass in here. Secure these two prisoners. He didn't even question me. He walks right by me, shotgun in hand. Didn't say a word. He didn't know me from Adam, but he walks right by me and he takes possession. Now, the problem from this point on gets uh, a little bit because the police officer misinterpreted the scene. And then that word got passed around to the other officers who were showing up. And, of course, you have an armed robbery where you have captured suspects, shots fired. Everybody that's within driving range that's got nothing better to do. They, they all, show up they at all the show scene. Up. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's typical. It's, yeah, typical thing. And they come into uh, Gooseneck. So apparently one of them had gone outside because the EMS had been called and had told the EMS technicians that one of the guys inside was shot, they needed to treat the guy, and that he was actually, according to the officer, had told the EMS guys he was an innocent victim caught between the shop owner and the robber. So the they told them that? Yeah, we find this out later. So the EMS guys come in. They don't realize that the guy's got his hoodie on backwards underneath here. All they see is all these different wounds from all these different angles with the double-op buck, the entrance, the exits, the slug, the broken bones. So they do everything they can. They pull all all of the stops out and hit him with the biggest IV and the whole nine yards. They get him to the hospital, and then they turn around and tell the doctors when they go in. They've called in and told the doctors, this guy is an innocent victim. So the doctors pull out all the stops. They save this bastard's life. Okay, Okay. well. He should have died. Too bad. <laughs> no, it gets worse. So they saved this bastard's life. And the Mexican kid, he gets hauled off to jail. The black kid, he ends up going to the hospital. They fix him up. He's he's now basically a paraplegic because from where the slug, right about here, where the slug hit, I think it was four or five, L4 or five. And he can't walk or do anything else. So... They've got him in a wheelchair. He goes to court, and our wonderful court system here in Bear County with our DAs, lazy prick bastards, and I get to say that because I've gone against them a number of times as a defense witness, but they decide they don't want to prosecute the case. They want to have a plea bargain, so they've offered a plea bargain. They give this kid, I forget what it was, four or five years. He serves 18 months, and he's out, and 
paroled. Oh, great. Okay, so he's out, but he did that in the Dallas area and never heard another word about him. But the black kid, same basic thing. I stand up in front of the wonderful judge, and you're going to get to hear about that part of it because I got to say this in court, on record, and if nobody likes it, too damn bad because here it comes. Okay. We had the wonderful judge who was the saint of Bear County. This judge was the one that was hearing the case when the prosecutors and defense came in and said they had a plea agreement. Mr. Barlow says, yes, we agree. We will let this stand. You guys have made your agreement, and it would do no good to incarcerate this young man because he received his punishment at the time of his crime. In other words, he's recognized that he's in a wheelchair that he can't possibly harm the general public anymore. So they put him on probation. They told me they gave him 10 years. Turned out later I found out it was only five, and it was unsatisfactorily fulfilled, another part of the story. But they turned him loose. He leaves. He doesn't pay a damn bit of restitution to anything for anybody. Hell, just for grins, I filed on him for the damage to my door because his guts didn't stop my 12-gauge pellets. I wanted him to replace my door. But the... Uh, he didn't complete his probation properly. He goes out. He gets a, an apartment that you and I get to pay for. He gets medical attention. All of his medical bills are all absorbed by the county. They give him. They constantly give him opioids for pain management. The state of Texas buys him a van and puts in handicapped uh, assist tools so he can drive back and forth to the store. Our tax dollars at work. Our tax dollars at work. So every single federal state, local benefit that he could get a hold of, he did. For a criminal who tried to rob your gun store. Absolutely correct. And then the news gets better from here. I'll give you, like like I said, I'm cutting out a ton of details. Yeah, we we understand. But I get a call two years ago. It's from the Bear County District Attorney's Office. And the crimes victim advocate uh, lady says, we need you to come down and testify in a case. Now, this is weird as shit for me. Because why, as a defense witness, is the county going to call me? There is no way they're going to pay my fee for acting for them in court. There's no way that they're going to want to document me as a witness. And the lady tells me, well, wait, I'll have the prosecutor call you and explain. Prosecutor calls back about five minutes later. He says, we need you to come down because we need you as a character witness. Now, this totally blows my mind. Character witness. Character witness. I don't even have a case going at this time with Bear County. But I have no clue what they're talking about. He says, well, just a minute. I want to test your memory. He says, I want you to realize it's been a long time. And he said... Do you recognize the name of Tracy Cobbs? Well, Tracy Cobbs is the black kid that I shot. All right, it's only been 29 freaking years since I shot this bastard. So I'm going to come down and be a character witness because now the district attorney's office has decided to prosecute him in an actual trial for something else that he has done. So I go down to meet with the prosecutor. And again, I'm going to cut a bunch of the story out. But essentially, he shows me the file on Tracy Cobbs. I hand him my 20, I think it's 23 pages of data that I had written up on Tracy Cobbs, which is, of course, why I remembered him. Well, it turns out that Tracy Cobbs, he never learned a damn thing. Three weeks before my second armed robbery, Tracy Cobbs had been caught by the helicopter division and the West Side uh, Patrol Division of San Antonio. He was driving his wonderful handicapped vehicle as a getaway vehicle for a burglary ring. They had four foot chases going on, and the only one that they caught in the whole damn thing was Tracy sitting in his vehicle. But I thought he was not supposed to be a threat to anybody. No, anymore. he's not supposed to be a threat That's to anybody. Isn't that what they said? Yeah. So this occurs three years after he's gone through his plea bargain agreement within his probation. And guess what? They don't violate his probation. They give him, oh, hmm, I wonder what. They give him probation again because they don't want to put the little bastard into the correctional facility with a wheelchair. He goes back home. Too much money. Yeah, that's right. It's all about money. It isn't about justice. This justice system doesn't care about any of that. So what happened was is that he goes back home and then I find out from the, the file that the prosecutor hands me a couple of years later, they got a little drug dealer or a little drug guy who gets caught. He turns his dealer over to the, the narcotics unit. They get a warrant and they run on the warrant. And guess where it is? It's Tracy Cobb's apartment. They hit him. and He's selling the opioids and stuff that we've been giving to him for free. He's selling them now because they don't do him any good anymore. And 
they book him for a felony. They take him to court. What does he get? Probation. Probation. How about that? They do that? it again. That was his third one, right? Third probation? And that would have been, yeah, that would have been his third one, not including the carjacking they tried earlier than that. But the thing was is that he gets to go back home and pay no penalty whatsoever. About five years later, they get another uh, doper who turns on his dealer. And this time, it's heroin. They go run the warrant. Guess who it's on? Tracy Cobbs. They go and they find out not only does he have dealership level of opioids, he's now doing cocaine, heroin, all the wonderful stuff, the meth and stuff. And this time, the little bastard's got a gun in his apartment. He's a convicted felon. He's not supposed to have this. He's not supposed to have the gun. So they arrest him. They take him down. And what's the DA do? Hmm. Probation. They give the little... Probation. Frick probation. (laughs) Okay. So finally, when I get the call, they now are prosecuting him. And they have a judge. Another curious part of this thing was a judge who's not part of the good old boy system, one of the first ones I've ever seen in Bear County. But this judge is in there, and the defense has decided that the trial is going to be by jury, but the sentencing, if there's a conviction, will be by the judge. Because what are they expecting to get from the judge? Probation. Probation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, again. So the judge, I'll give him credit. The guy sat there. He didn't say a word, looked straight forward the whole nine yards, and... I get to tell the prosecutor, you're doing something for me that's very, very unusual. You're going to let me get on the stand, on the record, in a felony trial, and I'm going to get to say whatever I damn well please because I'm not an expert in this case. I get to tell you my opinion. I'm going to attack your fucking judge. I'm going to attack your district attorneys, the three or four of them that went through this whole process that let him go, and I'm going to attack the shit out of this system. So he says, I really would appreciate you don't screw my case up. But I said, no, 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 I'm not going to hurt your case. But the last thing I'm going to do is I'm going to tell that judge exactly what I think he should do when he goes for the penalty. And the thing that I told him, and I said this directly in court, we've paid for him all these years. We're going to pay for him for the rest of his years. This time, put him where you can control him. If we're going to pay for him, put his ass in prison. Now... Again, part of the long story, there were some legal issues here that occurs, and I give this testimony. And in the end, the judge, they get a conviction from the jury, and the judge sentences this guy to two consecutive life terms, no possibility to parole. So they rolled his ass out of the courtroom as hopefully never to be seen again. Okay, so finally. So finally. After four times. This was a mantra between me and the prosecutor was that every time we referenced something that had to do with time, we said, but you know, it's been 29 years. And the fun part that I had with the defense attorneys, of course, I figure defense attorneys being what they are, attorneys get to lie in court because they're not under oath. I figured his defense attorneys would make up some story. Well, they completely blew me away with the story that they had made up. They had made up, when they started questioning me, they asked me about, Mr. Ferris, you need to tell us the debt that you are, were in at the time of this shooting. I says, I wasn't in any debt. He says, oh, yes, you were. We understand. We've got witnesses that will testify to the massive debt that you were under. So what are you talking about? And so finally, he says, no, you're a gambler. We know that you had gambling debt because that man right there, and he points at Tracy Cobbs, was sent to your store to collect that gambling debt, and you shot him so you wouldn't have to pay the debt. And after I've answered this a couple dozen times, finally I'm glaring at the prosecutor like, get up off your ass, make an objection, question, asked, and answered. Finally, he does that. So we get called uh, up to consult with the judge. So he brings him up for a sideline. And it's funny part of this was I was so mad at this point about having these questions over and over and implying that I shot this dumb bastard because of gambling debt. The little gal who was the court recorder sitting right in front of me at the base of the the, uh, uh, witness chair, she looks up and she says, Mr. Ferris, uh, uh, I really have a favor to ask of you. She says, could you please slow down? You talk way too fast. I can't copy all this down and get it in the courtroom. So I start laughing. Now, what you don't know is, is that the courtroom was absolutely chalked full of people that day. It's the full, the, the, the most packed courtroom I've ever seen in my lifetime because everybody in the court system had vacated and took off and went to a convention up in Austin. And the only one that got caught behind was this judge with this active trial and one other judge. So we had the entire side of the courtroom covered up in orange jumpsuits 
prisoners that were there waiting for their turn to talk. The other wall was two and three deep and standing attorneys, and then all the families were inside of the, the courtroom. So they got rid of the guy. And like I said, there's a whole bunch of extra to this. But I got to contest this because I was challenged. How can you recognize my client? I told him, I, quite frankly, I don't recognize your client just by looking at him now. Because I only saw him once, hmm, let's see, 29, 29 years, years ago. ago. And I did that directly to him. And then he gets all haughty and he says, well, if you can't recognize him, I said, wait a minute. I didn't say I couldn't. I said I can't right now. But if the court will give me permission, I'll do an exterior examination. This is what I'm going to find. I'm going to find pellet wounds in his right arm. I'm going to find wounds through his abdomen. Nine pellets, nine in, nine out. I'm going to find, and this is the fun part, because Cobbs is sitting here the whole time like this with this big scar sitting here just glaring at me. And I said, I'm going to find a big patch of scar tissue through that left arm. I'm going to find a scar tissue through the back and if I have to, I said, we can check an x-ray and find out if he doesn't still have a 12-gauge slug buried in his spine. Because they didn't know that I knew at the time what had happened. This is what the EMS guys had done later. I says, I can identify your client. And what's more, I can promise you, there is nobody in this hemisphere that has that series of wounds. That's good enough confirmation for me that that's Tracy Cobbs. And this blue, of course, he's screaming the whole time. I'm being non-responsive in the whole nine yards. And the judge is just sitting there going, well, you asked the question. And I got to answer it. But what you didn't know was, is that when I told you that the EMS guys had been misinformed that day, okay, they went down, they saved Tracy Cobb's dumbass life. About three weeks later, a guy walks into my store, and we're still on high alert. I've got people sitting with guns around the Three room. weeks after the, the after shooting? The, the, after the original robbery. The original robbery. Yeah. Okay. This guy walks into the store, and I don't know him from Adam, and he's carrying a big manila envelope. So I'm sitting here thinking, oh, crap. Because what I'm thinking it is, is it's a process server. Okay. So he comes in. And I'll tell you the fact that I also got sued by Mr. Cobbs, too, or tried to get sued by Mr. Cobbs for shooting him. But the pro this guy comes in, and he says, I have something to give you, and he sets the envelope on the counter. He says, I'm not going to tell you who I am. He says, you don't need to know my name. I'm not supposed to do this. Matter of fact, I'm violating some laws doing this, but I feel we owe you this. He says, myself and all the people involved in the medical treatment of Tracy Cobbs want you to have this. <laughs> he brought me his medical records, all of his x-rays, everything showing the slug in his spine. And he says, the number one thing I'm bringing to you is an apology from us for letting this bastard get the treatment that he got. And I said, no, you don't have to apologize for that. I would expect no less from you, no matter who it was. You guys did your job. You did it right. Do not feel bad about it. He says, well, no matter what you say, we still feel bad about it. So about two years, uh, it was a little bit after that uh, that. Tracy Cobbs thing, the other EMS technician who I had never met, he had retired. He come by and he says, do you remember me? I said, no. He says, well, do you remember that envelope we had my buddy bring you by? Yeah. So those guys all still remember that. Wow. Almost okay. 30 freaking years later. Well. Now, that's the first robbery. And the big lesson from the first robbery was I had a lot of things that I didn't prepare for. Yes, yeah. that's, that's the lesson to the class and to the, to the people listening. Which what's one thing you didn't prepare for? <clears throat> well, number one, I didn't have the shotgun set up exactly the way that I should have, and that was something that I worked on. I and that shotgun was taken from me after the first robbery. We had to almost sue the Bear County system to get my shotgun get back. Get your shotgun back. Yeah, because we found out that the judge in the case with Tracy Cobbs had decided that shotgun didn't need to go back to the property room. It was sitting in his closet there in the courthouse. He was keeping it. So I had to go back through that to get it back. That shotgun got back to me three weeks before the second robbery occurred. But the number one thing that I learned from from uh, my preparation for the robbery was is that I wasn't properly prepared. Yeah. And that I needed to work with all the stuff around me to make sure that everything was going to be correct and functional. And then there's a story behind the shotgun. We actually got the shotgun fixed 
a little bit before the robbery, and it was brought in, and I bought it from a customer, and it had a broken ejector, something I've never seen on a Remington 870, but we fixed that and got that, and I had it in a place where I couldn't get to it as easily as I needed to, and then the other thing was not having more firearms to be able to get a hold of in order to get to the shotgun, so I, I, I did all that. And then also remembering, dumbass, get the damn gun up to your shoulder. Well, now that shotgun now has sights on it that I put on there that are like pistol sights so that when I shoot a slug, I'm going to be within three inches at 50 yards or further to get on you with that shotgun and do the extensions also on it. But that was the number one thing. But these guys primed me with their stupidity. They primed me so that I could survive the next robbery. The next robbery was much, much more vicious with greater intent. These guys were only after, the first robbery was only after what they could get in exchange for monetarily. Yeah. The guys that came the second time, they had totally different motivation. This was a whole bunch of wannabes who decided that they were going to audition for a gang. Now, I don't remember if it was Kings or Crips or whatever the hell it was. But when they pulled up to the store that morning, there was three of them that were auditioning. And these were uh, high school football players, believe it or not, from almost high school. And they're all big guys. And they had carjacked a woman at one of the filling stations over off of San Pedro the the previous night to get the car that they were driving that day. And two of the people that were in the car... So they stole the car. Yeah, they took the car. They Directly, it's a robbery, basically, because they took it away from the lady. Okay. But they they got the car, and they were going to use that for the robbery the next day so that they could then, of course, abandon it. Well, the other two guys who were the major gang members were there to view these guys' actions to be able to confirm that they were going to do what they needed to do as major gang members. In other words, their audition for the gang. And uh, they stayed out in the car and sent these three idiots in. Now, I had prepared a whole lot better. And, again, there's a whole bunch of funny extra little stories behind Let me stop you for a minute. So you took the lessons from the first shooting. Oh, absolutely. And you applied them to the second robbery. So... In 10 or 15 minutes, what did you do differently in the second one that well, you didn't do in the first Well, that intermediate one? gun position. In Which other is words, what? Having What's that? More. Well, my arrangement for the interior of my shop was not nice and big and wide open with access to the back anymore. So they we, came back to the same shop? The, same, the next same criminals? Shop. Yeah, same so your, shop. So your shop got robbed twice. Yeah, same shop, robbed twice. So we had changed the counters, we changed stuff to where we could block and be able to control a little bit more the entrance and the way that things would go on in the shop. But the main thing was is that we had stashed firearms in other places throughout the shop. What I didn't tell you in the first um, shop robbery, it was it was just me okay in the second shop robbery it was my assistant and my wife was actually there doing bookkeeping oh yes and my wife is not trained for using firearms she acted quite admirably i might add and long story short but the thing was is that she was there in the office Mikey was in the back room working when i heard because it's an old wooden house i could hear people out on the porch but they didn't come right in and I had re-armored the door, and I had set up the buzzers so we could, you know, hear what the second that door opened. And these guys crashed through the door, three of them, all at one time. And one of them has a pump shotgun with the pistol grip on it. I believe it was a Mossberg. He's got it loaded, which he didn't do right either, which we found out later. And he's also carrying what at the time I thought was a concussion grenade. It turned out to be later a smoke grenade. He had it tucked under this arm, and he had the shotgun in his right. As they come through, I looked around the corner, and right in front of me, I had put my 1911. I had a 1911-38 Super. Funny story, too. This gun was built and being finished out to be able to show what I could do as a gunsmith. In other words, a guy comes in for a competition gun, I could show him the different features. You could features. show him an example of yeah, what an you're going to do. an example of the different features you could choose. But this was sitting here because the gun that normally sat here was my Browning High Power, which we had tried about a week and a half before that, and it didn't function correctly, so I had to work on it. But as a typical gunsmith, you work on customers' guns first, friends' guns second, and you might get to yours might get eventually. To yours. Yeah, eventually. <laughs> if ever. <laughs> so I took the Browning, and it was sitting in the safe, but I had put this up here and I had just test fired this thing a couple of days before and I'd had a little old lady had come into my shop uh, 
she had brought in some ammo. Her husband had died and she didn't want it around the house. She was fearful that it was dangerous and stuff. So I took it from her. And it turned out that it was 38 Super, which most people don't realize is also called 38 AMU when you load it in a certain way. The Army Marksmanship Unit is a target load. This was the first and only box I've ever seen in my life of Winchester Silver Tip in 38 AMU. So I had gone back to test fire it, tested it in the pit, worked perfectly fine. That's what I had the gun loaded with was Winchester Silver Tip, but it wasn't true 38 Super. It was a little bit downloaded from there. Well, that gun's sitting right here. The instant that I looked out the door, saw the, the shotgun in the guy's hands, I yelled robbery. I pulled this gun, leaned out around the corner. Now, I couldn't get past the corner without exposing myself over. I hear that Mike and Melinda are moving around. I know Mike's running for the shotgun. This guy comes charging around the corner, and he's coming through the gate that we had on the end of the counter. And as I lean out, he fires a shot. That load of shot goes right over my shoulder, hits the gun safe behind me, puts a pattern about two to three inches on the gun safe, pellets scatter everywhere, and then, because I can't get my head out behind the gun, I look down the side of the slide and I start shooting, and I, I fire four shots. Now, when I start shooting, he dives to the side and falls down. When he hits the floor, I'm not watching the other two guys. One of them has a pistol, but I don't I haven't really seen that because I'm focused on the idiot with the shotgun. When he hits the ground with the shotgun, it bounces him enough that he double pumps it. You know what that means. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, he didn't clear the previous, and he had run the next round into the bottom of it. He's laying on the floor trying to shuck this thing while this grenade's rolling around, and I can't tell if he's already pulled a pin on it or what. But I decide I need to shoot at him again because he's working that shotgun trying to get another shot off. I shoot at him. He realizes that, hey, this is stupid. My gun doesn't work, and he throws his arms out splayed and the shotgun falls out of his arms and at this point now the other two have reacted and they're just bouncing around the room they take off running for the front door and if you guys are old enough to remember the keystone cops when two cops try to go through the same door at the same time that's what these two morons did they hit the door but the door was already open but it had a closer on it they had broken the door when they came in because they crashed through the door. Okay. Now, the door is weighted with this big sheet metal on the front side, and the door had fallen down. The sheet metal had dug into the wood floor, and when they hit the door, the guy with the gun, gun got knocked out of his hand. It went underneath the door, and when they backed off the door, the door fell on top of the gun. Now, we didn't know it. I didn't know any of this at the time, but he turns around instead of running out the door, sees his gun, reaches down, and goes into the old Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. low crouch FBI shoot the car at 60 miles an hour and blow it up. You laugh because you've seen that. Okay. He does this very move, and that's all I can see in my head is he's reaching for this gun. And when he does that, I fill the door up with a few more shots. He finally decides, I don't need that gun anymore. He takes off running. One guy goes to the right, one guy goes to the left. Now, in the meantime, my assistant is hearing all the shots. He's in the back. He's retrieved the shotgun from its original point, and he's trying to find an opportunity to shoot at these guys through some of the openings that we have in the wall. And every time he gets to a point to where he can get to them, they have just left that area. Mm -hmm. So finally, he comes up to the old law enforcement door that I had fired the pellets through before. He opens the door. While I'm looking at the guy on the floor, the other two have already left. Mikey and I both turn, point our guns at each other, and then turn and point away. And Mike goes, where'd they go? I said, they're outside. I see Mike go to the door. He edges out the door with the shotgun up. He glances around the corner, and then he leaps off the porch. And then I hear a couple of shots. Well, Mike shoots the car because the gang members had backed the car up to pick up the one idiot that had turned left. The other one had turned and run right. So they pick up the one idiot. He shoots the car. He takes out both the tires on the, the front and rear left side. He puts pellets through the back with the second shot, and one of the pellets grazed one of the major members. We find all this stuff out later, of course. These guys take off with their tires going low circle the block, go seven blocks down. Now, they missed the other guy who's running around. He's still running all over the neighborhood. He finally gets away. They abandon the car. Then they jump in the car and run down to drop the one guy off and uh, at the hospital. <clears throat> so our guy is sitting here laying, and he's uh, 
screaming, oh, uh, my mom, my mom, please tell my mom. They're tell always my mom. asking thought, for their mommy, It's always right? about mommy at the end. I pretty much Big tough guys and well, I pretty, With guns And it's always about mommy I pretty much told him What he could do about that But when I had heard the shots From the outside I was afraid that Mike was in trouble Well at this time Melinda comes out And she's taking the Derringer Out of my My briefcase She walks out And I said Point that right there And if he moves Kill him And she gets right over the top of him I said You shut up and don't move So she puts the gun on him I run out to check on Mike And he comes back in now, the confusion is just completely mass confusion. This has all happened in what we estimate based on what a guy out on the street by the bus stop said, 20 seconds or less mm-hmm. from the time they hit the door to the time. That's that how fast open. this stuff happens. Yeah. That's so how people fast. listening to this need to understand you don't have minutes to react. No, you don't. This is, this is seconds you're talking about. So in the meantime now, the EMS shows up. And they don't make the mistake that they did in the first one. We know who the bad guy is. They get him on the gurney, and the last thing I ever hear from him is, oh, I'm cold. Oh, that's a great sign to me. You know anything about medicine. If a guy is complaining that it's cold and the temperature is 90-plus degrees, eh, the blood flow's not going where it's supposed to be Something's going. Wrong. Yeah. yeah. Now, they haul his ass down. They put him in the hospital. And they, of course, make several more mistakes. They have people who come in and identify themselves as family members. Oh, they're family, all right. They're gang family. Gang family. So the gang guys get down there because they've gotten calls from the other two that got away. Now, he's in the hospital. The gang members come to visit him, and they all come to one simple conclusion. I reacted so well, so fast, so effectively, I knew they were coming. They thought that I had ambushed them. I'm serious. Now, did find- they try to make that story? Yes, they did. And uh, it, it caused a lot of other problems. And what happened was is that we had, SAPD had the intelligence unit, I use that term loosely, especially now, but the intelligence unit had a couple of officers in it who were concerned with what was going on because they knew that this was gang-related. It was very obvious from the very get-go, and they knew which gang. So what happened was is that they actually had a snitch in the gang that the gang didn't know about. That night, two blocks from my shop where the robbery took place, they had a gang meeting. And everybody came to the gang meeting, and they decided they needed to retaliate against me because they had found out from... Their the analysis. No, they had found out from the analysis from the guy at the hospital that it was probably an ambush. Oh. And they had wondered why. Now, our guy who goes to the hospital, he dies within four hours. I had a bullet clip the top of his heart and hit his aorta, which is why he was bleeding internally. And he finally fucking passed away, thank God. And bad news there is, is we paid to bury him and they put him at Fort Sam Houston couple of rows over from my father. I just, you know how you feel about stuff like that. And he got that because the wonderful funeral director found out he wasn't going to get his bill paid. So he asked about the guy's dad who was in prison up in Huntsville. Turned out he had medic or had benefits from being military. And because this kid was not quite of age, he was still considered a dependent. So they gave him the free funeral. Hold on one second, Greg. See, I want people to understand this is the kind of stuff that you face. You know, this is the kind of the kind of evil, the kind of the kind of junk. You know, we're we're right here at the range teaching these guys how to win the first fight. What you're talking about is the second fight. Yeah. Probably the most vicious fight is what happens after you save your life or save your store or save whatever. Yeah, a lot of people don't understand why I'm so strong in my opinions, and it's because of this. Because of these two incidents? Yeah, it's because of the two incidents and what I had to, to work with afterwards, how the system abandoned pretty much what it was supposed to do. I yeah. mean, don't presume that anything's going to work for you. You always have to fight to force these people into it. Uh, so, he dies. Now, the gang makes two decisions. One, they're going to snipe me from, ironically, the parking lot across the street that belonged to a lawyer. So they were going to set up on me the next day that when I came to work, they were going to snipe me. The informant calls and tells the intelligence officers who set up on the HEB roof and watch my building all night long. And they set up down the road so they can see if these guys come in to filter into the parking lot. Now, I'm not aware of any of this shit. Nobody calls and tells me nothing. I'm driving into work the next day, but I'm fully set and ready to go because I'm... 
heightened well, state yeah, beyond, your, beyond your level of preparedness is I sky high through now. the roof so i'm carrying my bm 59 and 308 and i'm wearing flak vest and the whole nine yards when i pull into my my driveway i look around i don't see anything and as I get out of my vehicle, a car roars up, screeches to a stop behind me, and I get tackled by two police officers who drag me inside and saying, hey, we're covering you, we're covering you, don't don't get upset because I'm fixing to turn this BM-59 around. So they block me and take me inside. So they tell me about the informant, they tell me about what they've got going on, they tell me about what the gang's going to do. But what they didn't know, because they had another gang meeting a couple of days later, they wanted to know how did I know they were coming, because they firmly believed that. So they had two guys that they had that had military experience in EOD. So they were trying to find out where I'd lived. They were going to set a bomb in my car. I'll tell you some of how they managed to do that. Then on top of that, they found out that one of the kids who was a wannabe, okay, when the press published that I was an ex-police officer, they went, ah, now we know what's going on. There was a white kid who wanted to be a wannabe. It was a wannabe wanted to be a gang member, and they found out. Hmm, his dad's an SAPD. So the kid told his dad, and his dad told me. So I'm sitting there waiting on him. They did a drive-by on the kid and his dad. They didn't hit anything. Didn't hit anybody. They fired like 12 shots at him and his dad. So of course the kid did did not follow through on his gang membership, and the SAPD started having to protect one of their own because of crap that was happening to me. So this was all starting to flow in different directions. What we found out was, and this is one few clever things that I ever knew of that a criminal did, they wanted to follow me home, but I lived out here, okay? Mm -hmm. And that's a long ways from Hildebrand. Yeah, it is. And what they didn't know was, is every day when I left, I took a different route home. Sometimes it'd take me 30 minutes, 30 miles, hour, whatever, to get home. Did you start doing that after the first incident? No, I didn't. You I always did, did that? I, no, I no, I did that when I found out when about you found the out informant. About seven. the informant. Yeah. Okay, got the it. other two I wasn't worried about because yeah. they were just complete morons and they yeah. were totally independent. These, This group was all gang related. So what I did was, believe it or not, I actually set up some ambushes on my own. I would pull into a street area where I knew they couldn't get in or get out without me seeing them if they ever exited the vehicle. I had one incident where I had to call Comal County because I had some guys that didn't belong in my neighborhood had passed by two or three times. And when the wonderful uh, Comal County Sheriff's deputy showed up, I said, this is the situation, this is what's going on, and here comes the car again. I said, you get behind my car. I said, I'll handle this. <laughs> he got behind the car and I stayed out in front. So he followed up and they caught the car and found out later, got the names and stuff, so they quit doing that. But the thing was is that they had stopped my FedEx driver, they stopped the UPS driver, they stopped everybody to try to find out where I was. So what's the number one lesson you learned from the first incident that helped you in the second incident? To be prepared. Prepared how? In every manner, shape, or form you could do, no matter what you could imagine, Make it worse and then prepare for it. That was the real lesson in this. Get your skill level up. Get your firearms correctly set up so that they're where they're accessible. Get your firearms so that they perform functionally correct. And, and note that you're, he's saying firearms, plural. Yes, it's multiple firearms. Multiple firearms. Get your assistance, the people around you to understand what's going on uh, so that they can react so that you don't have problems with interacting against the bad guys and getting your other people in the way. I mean, the whole trick here is, is most instructors do not agree with me on this, is that I always have, and I've done this in several other incidents, I have always advanced in a gunfight, okay? I had a whole bunch of officers that we documented when I was on SAPD way back in the 70s. They were teaching what LAPD was teaching, which was, oh, wait a minute, he's got a gun. Run for cover. Now pull your gun and return fire. There was literally a dozen plus officers that we knew about that were shot, not necessarily killed, but were shot or wounded and incapacitated because they were busy running for cover rather than returning fire. Mm -hmm. And we had a number of incidents where, okay, call him a dumb cop. He just said, fuck you, stood there and shot back at him. Well, that all changed in my era for one simple reason. Mr. Davis invented the second chance vest. Mm -hmm. And when police officers got a vest, they found out that it was a whole lot better, rather than running for cover, 
to let the vest take care of the critical area while you return fire to suppress what the other guy's doing to you. In other words, stop the threat as fast as possible, which is required by Texas law. You can do anything you want to stop that threat. And you do it until this threat is stopped, until which is the other stopped. problem is most people don't recognize that you don't have to shoot the guy and then go, well, did I hit him in the right shoulder or did I hit him in the left <laughs> knee? Is he going to fight back? No, you shoot until the bastard goes down and stays down. Yeah. And, that, and that is very firmly set in law is that you perceive the threat the way that you perceive it based on your background and your training. And whatever that perception is, that allows you to have the justification to use that deadly force. And Ben was teaching some of that in this class about, you know, being aggressive to end the fight. Yeah. And if you have done what you're supposed to do, and this is the number one thing, and I know this is what you've been asking about all the time, is my number one rule is steal every single advantage you possibly can before the incident. That's what I said. You you play what if in your brain. You figure out all the crap that could possibly happen. Game it out. And then whatever advantage you can steal, you steal it. You steal it by picking the best firearm. You steal it by picking the best ammo. You steal it by picking the best area for confrontation. You steal it because you don't give away territory. Now, there's one thing you pretty much don't control, which is the element of surprise, which gets a lot of people in trouble. Mm -hmm. I call it the startle effect. I point a gun at you. Your brain's going to go, before you do anything. Yeah, what just happened? Because normal people don't get guns pointed at them. Okay, I've had guns pointed at me. (laughs) I already know what that means. Time to be free with my ammo. Mm -hmm. Now let it fly. And do it as fast as I possibly can. But a lot of people do not overcome their startle response the way that they need to. And here's the other thing. Your startle response can be reversed. Most people don't think of that. What do your bad guys expect you to do? They expect you to comply. If you comply, what do they think? I don't need to worry about this guy anymore. Yeah, I got this And when you instantly turn from that passive to that aggressive... They're not expecting that. They're not expecting it, and you have a startle response, which gives you a benefit above and beyond, which is the one thing that worked for me in that first robbery was that guy had no clue that I was coming back in that room. That guy had no clue that I'd be armed when I came back in that room. He had no clue that I was going to advance to that next next corner and still shoot at his dumbass. Okay. Okay? All that startle response was reversed on this guy. That's a good point. Um, Greg, in the essence of time, we're going to wrap it up, but you guys have any questions or comments? Were you carrying? You mean now? No, at the time. No, I always have a a farm about that far away from me, no matter what. I mean, uh, it seems to me like you lost an opportunity... Because that 357 was on the counter and you had to go to a different That 357 was this far away. The reason I didn't grab that 357 was is I had a customer between me and him. Okay. All right. Do you want to hear another secret? Yep. Okay. I'm a gunsmith. When a gunsmith looks at a gun and he's an actual real gunsmith, not an armor, I saw something that I wasn't 100% sure of, but I was about 99% sure of. The guy had a safety mounted on his slide the safety was broken the tab on the bottom was sheared off so i could see the break and the and fracture you knew line. that and i knew that when he pointed the gun at me but i wasn't 100 percent sure if it was on or off until i evaluated it later and plus when he ran into the other room that didn't mean he wouldn't have had time to be able to take it back off the safety so yeah i i, I realize these things I've testified in a number of cases about this. You, you've heard of, uh, what is it, tachypsychia or psychotachia? Tachypsychia. Tachypsychia. I had that in my second robbery. That second robbery, call it 10 to, to 20 seconds, in my brain played out for almost five minutes. That's how slow everything was moving. And I've had auditory exclusion. When I shot that dumb bastard or shot the shotgun in the first one, I didn't hear a damn thing. In an enclosed room. 12-gauge, okay. <laughs> right? Yeah, 12-gauge in an enclosed room three times. You didn't hear anything out of a 12-gauge shotgun. Yeah. And the wonderful Bear County Forensics Lab screwed that up, too, which I had to 
screw with later. I mean, there's a lot of different backstories on all this stuff about how that it worked out in the long run. But the point here is, is you steal every advantage you can from your opponent. You do it ahead of time. You have preparation. You have equipment. You have position. And you have to have the ability to respond to them so that they don't realize how quickly you can respond. Yeah, well, thank you, Greg. And to John's point, I think keeping the gun on your person is probably going to be even... I don't always 100% agree with that. No? No. Because in the position that I was in in a gun store, they're going to assume that what? Guns are available. Now, whether they're loaded or not, who knows what a criminal's going to think. But when you go to a gun store and you look around, if everybody's armed, okay, that is preventative. But if somebody decides that they don't care about the preventative measure that you have, in other words, the gun on your hip, what are they going to do when they come in the store? Are they going to say a word? No, they're going to blow your fucking head off. Because they're not going to confront that because they have made the decision that this is going to work out no matter what. And this may be the most aggressive way, but an armed robbery is what under state law? Oh, it's a first-degree felony. could be worse than that, but it's a first-degree felony. It's not much of a step up from there to murder. So the point is, if I'm standing here fully armed and they walk in, are they going to take the time to disarm me? Probably not. And what's more, most people don't realize this is, I had a sign painted on the front of my store that both these idiot robbery teams walked right by. Home of the competitive shooter is a guy standing here doing this, pointing a gun. So they know what to expect when they walk in. I think in my first robbery, they didn't didn't care, and I don't know that they cased the joint. I'm gonna I'm wondering if they did or not because we never got an admission. But they knew I wasn't armed. Okay. But they didn't know about that gun under the counter because we found out later when we looked through the bag that that gun was thrown in the bag as if it was just taken as part of the merchandise or the inventory. Okay. Guys, anything else that you wanted to bring up or anything? Um, Greg, I appreciate you sharing this. No problem. Like I said, there's a ton of backstories, the pellets on the safe and the... Well, we'll do a part two and talk about that. And next time I come here to practice... You should have a big list of questions this I will. I'm going to have a big list of questions, and that'll be a part two for people to listen to at a later date, but... um, Thanks again for your time and for telling us about what we're preparing for. Well, here's the final thing that I can tell all of you. Please don't ever be where I've been. Uh, That's, yes. Yes, avoid it. Yes, avoid it. Avoid it. Thanks, Greg. I appreciate it. Wow, good stuff. Thank you, Greg Ferris, once again. I listened to this three times. And each of the three times... I, I heard something that I didn't hear while I was sitting there with Greg. You heard other students in the class that also had comments and questions and things like that. Unbelievable. Let me know what you think. I have a voicemail. 210-646-1727. 210-646-1727. Send a message on the voicemail. I'll put you on the Handgun World podcast. Email me, handgunworld at gmail.com, handgunworld at gmail.com. There is going to be a link on Facebook and on Twitter and MeWe and Parlor for this episode. You can comment there as well. Don't forget about Concealment Solutions, my other sponsor, makers of fantastic outside-the-waistband holsters. I'm a big believer in outside-the-waistband holsters if you're going to carry on your strong side hip. I, I'm a bigger believer in that than I am inside the waistband. So check them out, concealmentsolutions.com. The coupon code HANDGUNWORLD gets you a 10% discount. Please remember my Amazon store. You can support this show. I like to keep bringing you good interviews like this, folks, and keep doing this. And I can only do it if if you support me and continue to support me. A lot of you out there, there's hundreds of you out there that are supporters, and I thank you very, very much. And I'd like to keep it going. I need some more supporters to keep this going because after 11 years, 566 episodes, you know, I, I, I want to keep doing this. I want to keep going to 600, maybe more, maybe 650 episodes. But I need your help to do that. So consider supporting the show. You can go to the Handgun World Amazon store before you log into your Prime account or your Amazon account and do your shopping that way. And that doesn't cost you any extra money either. That's it for this episode, folks. Thanks for tuning in. 
Next week, I have a really cool subject, and I'm not going to really say much about that. Watch social media, and on Wednesday or Thursday, I'll be talking about that. And then, of course, you will hear it next Sunday. Thanks for listening. Shoot straight. Shoot safe. Read your Bible every day. I'll talk to you next week. Goodbye. Get my girl.